Hello and welcome to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. Um, and with me today is my co-host, Javier Figueroa. Hello, Javier. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know about you if it's because it's spring in the air. I think it's more than that. I'm feeling a lot of hope and happiness today. It could be that it's my son's birthday, but... <laughs> And and he's I'm so proud of him, such an awesome young man, but I won't make it about him. But, you know, as our show opens, you know, and for those on the radio, you hear we need a revolution. And, and if you're watching the video, you're seeing, you know, what we really need. We need a health revolution. You're, we need to switch over the whole paradigm from the highly profitable disease is scary to let's build health. Um, one feeds crop, uh, corporate profits and the other feeds the human health and spirit. <laughs> and, and Javier, I feel like two years ago when this all began, that revolution was just so slow below, you know, the radar. It was just mostly hope and hanging on, but my goodness, it is happening. In fact, I'm going to bring on our, our guest for this first hour very quickly because this woman, her name is AJ DePriest. Um, there is her beautiful mug for anybody who can watch it there and our radio listeners. Um, can't see her, but trust me, our, our beautiful AJ DePriest who, um, okay, so Again, if you can't see her, it's shocking to believe she is a grandmother. Yes, she is. I know you can't tell by looking at her. Um, I don't know what her magic is, but I'm going to ask her behind <laughs> the scenes what her elixir is to keep her so young looking. But anyway, she is part of this peaceful revolution that is truly going after what the problems are and finding solutions. I mean, I... I I have had the privilege now of, of meeting her in person and working with her um, here in Tennessee. And I've got to say, it's it's been quite an honor, AJ, to get to know you and see you in action. So oh, likewise. Thank likewise. you. Thank you. So I'm going to go ahead, you guys. I'm going to read this it's bio. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's so important because there's things here. Oh, wait a minute. First, I need to introduce AJ to Javier. So Javier is in Washington State. He has a PhD in neurobiology right. um, and where I'm the mom grassroots activist. He's my, he's also an activist, but he's science based, um, you know, and so he, he brings that other side of things to this program. Uh, I appreciate you. I really yeah. do. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. And I appreciate all the, the work that uh, you've also helped in, in getting this uh, out into the world. Yeah. You, um, Javier, you probably met her first on the high wire. That's where I discovered her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cool. Okay. So here we go. So AJ DePriest has more than 30 years of project management and technical writing experience in healthcare, publishing, and federal contracting industries, as well as grassroots community organization beginning in the early nineties. Eight. Oh, I needed to pause there. Beginning in the early nineties, AJ worked in world healthcare policy analysis, 
and Montana healthcare legislation reform while completing her degree in healthcare administration. I'm going to pause right there because AJ, if any, I mean, what we have right, you are a blend of all those forces (laughs) that have come together to kind of harm Americans and you understand it. That's what is the miracle of AJ here. So I'll continue. As a founding member, speaker, and administrative director of Project HEAL through Health Education Alliance, she aided in uniting this grassroots Montana organization to successfully repeal the state's government-run socialized healthcare laws and replace them with the comprehensive market-based healthcare plan. AJ co-authored MediChoice with Montana legislators, professionals from Montana healthcare and insurance industries, the Heritage Foundation, Cato Institute, and National Center for Policy Analysis. In January 2021, AJ founded the Free States Project Tennessee to gather Tennesseans' concerned voices and steer topics for research to her Tennessee-based think tank, Tennessee Liberty Network. Tennessee Liberty Network's 28 members have been instrumental in supplying state lawmakers and other policy leaders actionable intel on issues ranging from COVID mandates, illegal immigration, election integrity, and government-run education. The group's COVID mandate research led to the formation of the Adam Group, a COVID education and advocacy organization, and that is found at theadamgroup.net. We will be asking you more information, especially on the inspiration for that group. So the Adam Group has helped hundreds learn how to prevent COVID and how to effectively treat COVID at home. The organization also helps family rescue loved ones from hospitals after medical kidnapping and forced hospital protocols designed to kill COVID patients. We're not pulling any punches here. Next stop, AJ is working with several organizations to build a parallel PMA-based healthcare system in Tennessee where physicians treat patients without tyrannical government overreach. The goal is to create a true health and wellness system that stops treating symptoms and starts restoring health while also restoring physician-patient relationships and trust. Ah, Amen. <laughs> and I'm so that's glad it. I'm in- show over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, show over. That's that's what we got. And I'm mm. so glad I'm in Tennessee, but you know, a lot of my heart and soul is still in Washington State, where I just moved from and where I'm still very active. And I, I do believe that there will be people in Washington modeling what you're doing here in I Washington so. State. I sure but, hope so. Yeah. So, but a, a lot of your research. Um, is useful to absolutely everybody in the United States. So mm-hmm. let's kind of begin there. Let's begin with your your general COVID research that everybody in all states can benefit from. Um, well, probably probably the, the the biggest thing that we did when we dug started digging into the research was following the money to schools. And we eventually set up a telegram group for every state so that we could put all of the evidence documents for the ESSER money going to states. And that was all of the the money driving the requirements for masking and social distancing, quarantine, isolation, all the testing going on in schools, um, all the vax clinics, all of these led back to COVID relief money from the ARP Act, from ESSER 3 money. But even more importantly, 
now that we're past the mark the masking requirements for a while because i'm right. sure they'll be back um or all of the other requirements that are really disturbing like for social emotional learning mental health requirements um data privacy issues that are just really really awful yeah um, they're going to be re reporting collecting and reporting a lot of data to the federal government on kids mental health physical health and academic records so wow. that that was the first thing we did for Research. One, thing, one thing I would add is, you know, there's also the overlay of the Real ID Act. Uh, that's going to basically a, a national ID card that yeah. I know for a fact is interlinked with everything that it, that you've stated right now. Yeah, yeah, truly. I mean, we know we know how the enemy works because yeah. they don't try to hide anything from us. They tell us constantly exactly what they're doing, so it's not a mystery. <laughs> we don't have to wonder. But no. yeah. That, that's tied into it, and and also, um, you know, the socialized medicine through through Medicare for all. That's coming too, and it's all going to tie in the real ID, you know, the the national databases of information, especially for kids, mm -hmm. and um, and a complete socialized takeover of our healthcare system. Yeah, and so, it's, I think the way they get away with putting it all out there is because they put it wrap it up in pretty packaging. With yeah. lovely, nice, kind words about saving every, saving the planet, saving your neighbor, saving grandma, put a nice ribbon on it, and people don't see it for what it is. And you know, I've always been accused all my life of being a Pollyanna. My mother always said, "Oh, sweetie, you'll learn someday," you know, because she <laughs> she was a bit skeptical of of where we were headed and everything. And you know, and I do kind of learn the hard way. And I'm going to give this is kind of a bizarre thing, but it's what jumped in my head. I used to, when it came to the issue of, of guns and gun control, I always thought, well, you know, we as Americans, yeah, you should be able to have a gun to go hunting, keep your an antique gun and, and, you know, and maybe have some protection in your home locked up in a safe in case you got broken in. It never, ever occurred to me when all this legislation was keep being pushed to ban anything beyond that um, yes. was why would we need that? Because I was so naive. I grew up in what was a, in a very safe United States of America where my government would never, ever try to take my freedoms. My government mm -hmm. would never turn against me. And I tell you, over time, and then especially this past couple of years, as we've seen how easy it is to have our freedom stolen, yeah. I understand yeah. really what our forefathers meant by protecting us mm -hmm. in the constant with these amendments because governments do turn on you historically and you need to be able to protect yourself as citizens. Now, I'm not going in any dangerous direction and I hope nobody flags this or says that this is dangerous information. I'm just saying that historically the the pretty language that has always been put out there that I followed was missing so much information. Mm -hmm. Exactly what's happened with everything with COVID, right? Mm -hmm. They they wrap it all up, everything COVID related, and oh, we're doing this for your benefit. Oh, it's going to be mm -hmm. so nice for your health and safety. Yeah, health and safety. Mm -hmm. And then you don't see the other side. So much missing information in it that you don't understand um, the full picture. Yeah. I agree. And and I think um, when it when it comes to what's been going on in schools and the research that we 
we put out there on schools, I, I don't think it, I think if parents really understood, even the parents who were fans of masking their kids, thinking that it was for their health and safety, and the kids themselves, if they understood and if they saw the evidence that all of that was in exchange for money and yeah. had zero to do with health and safety, I mean, what would they think, especially the kids? I mean, they're, especially older kids who have had their, their junior and senior years just ruined. And, and so many kids that are depressed and, and just have real mental health issues now because of mm -hmm. everything that the government did. If they understood that this was never about health and safety, not mm -hmm. even for a minute, that this was, this was an exchange of money for, for strict require, requirements, compliance to requirements. I mean, how would these kids feel? They, they would never wear a mask again because you can't, you can't drive over to Knox County, Tennessee and drive over the border and, or, or Shelby County, Tennessee, where Memphis is, and you're in danger of dying from this deadly, horrific disease. And yet you drive into Wilson County or Jackson County and suddenly you're safe. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. COVID, COVID isn't that smart. It doesn't understand yeah. geographical boundaries. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. And we, we have to flip public health claiming masks are safe and effective because until we turn that over, they can get away with anything because yeah. the science, more, yeah, even more than, even more than masks are not safe and effective. COVID is not that deadly. There is, yeah. there, there are plenty of early treatments out there that yeah. even people with severe comorbidities, even older people can recover from COVID yeah. if they have the right treatment and the right doses at the right time in the phase of their COVID cycle. Yeah, exactly. Anybody can survive it. Yeah, exactly. And I do want to get boast a little bit here in, in, in Tennessee. Sorry, Javier, it didn't happen no, in no Washington. We'll try next year in Washington, but um, a bill to make ivermectin available without a prescription, but behind the pharmacy counter has now passed both the um, the House and um, and Senate uh, committees and will go to the floor votes. And there's a good chance that it will become Tennessee state law. We still have, you know, one big, pu the push through the floor right. votes and then the governor mm -hmm. has to sign, but I'm feeling hopeful that that will get through. And a bill here did, um, pass through both houses and is on its way. will soon be on its way to the, the governor after one more little stop, um, that, says that uh, nobody can treat anybody with natural any immunity any differently than they than they treat those who have received a vaccine shot. It, it wow, says good. that um, naturally wow. acquired immunity is equal to or superior than COVID mm -hmm. shots it's in in these bills that are passing. So that one's got a few warts we won't talk about on this program right now, but, but at least has that great message in there. So, so yeah, you started with the schools and could you tell people listening if they want to explore in their state, find out what money and strings attached, where should they go? Uh, we're on Telegram. We have a, we have a group for every state. They can go to Telegram. Uh, and I think the public group is called find my takedown group and it's T-A-K-E-D-O-W-N find my takedown group. And they can just pop in there and put their state and then we'll send them a PM, a, pr a private message with a one-time use link to get into that room. 
they were public groups for a while, but we had some ankle biters um, <laughs> attack like the, the almost all the states simultaneously. And it was a pretty disgusting five minutes and they got their little five minutes of fame. And then, and then we asked them and kicked the ankle biters out and made the groups <laughs> very private. So now we're very careful about who, who okay. we let in. And, and unfortunately, I mean, so many people were inviting other people, which was great, but the ankle biters were also inviting people in. So now it's one-time use links, but find my takedown group on Telegram. Excellent. Thank and you. all the evidence is in there. All the state plans, every district plan, every use of funds plan, mm -hmm. all the plans that show what your school district committed to in, to in exchange for that money, all the evidence is there. And and we tell people, you know, there's people don't argue with us about these things. People don't give us death threats and act crazy because th this isn't our opinion. I mean, mm -hmm. we this isn't hyperbole. It's evidence that we found and it's on every state website and on our federal government website. And it's just evidence that people can use to take down those power structures in their states. That's wonderful. Hey, AJ, did you ever hear, was it Arizona that the Biden administration said they were going to sue to get their yeah. money back because yeah. they were not complying with whatever happened? Did that well, there were eight states, actually. Um, Arizona was one of them mm -hmm. that um, the state or the governor was involved in either an executive order or their their legislatures passed laws that were anti-mask, anti-contact tracing um, because it was an invasion of privacy that violated one of the tenets of the interim final requirements in the ARP Act. And I, they went after Arizona first, I believe, because that's where the Ninth Circuit is. Mm -hmm. And everything that happens in the Ninth Circuit, everybody else pays attention to. And if they can scare Arizona into backing down and complying with these requirements, then think about every single school district in America is going to look at that precedent and those who have been on the fence about the requirements, they're going to be worried about losing that funding. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to start complying. So I think that's why uh, Arizona had um, not only a law about contact tracing, but I think they had an executive order or law about masking as well. Tennessee also. The Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, sent out a nasty gram to eight governors of states Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, Iowa, I think was one, Utah, um, Tennessee, I can't remember the others, but they all got nasty grams and they all basically said the same thing. You're in violation of your agreement uh, for the ARP Act, ESSER 3 money, and we're going to be watching you for your fiscal responsibilities to these requirements. And that is just plain language. And when I, I actually approached one of our lawmakers that in Tennessee that's um, really involved in education, and he said, oh, that's that's nothing, that's not happening because the federal government can't take back money once they've given it to states. And the very next day is when the Biden administration weaponized the, DO, um, the DOJ to go after um, Arizona's ESSER money. So I mean, there there are so many new precedents since COVID mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. that I don't think we're, we should be surprised at all if next they, they start coming after other states that have anti-mask or anti-contact tracing laws. Wow. And, and I'm not sure I might have missed a point. So did you say that there was an outcome or a, a final decision with the Arizona? No, no, no. Okay, so um, Arizona is fighting back and oh, they good. filed their own lawsuit. Good. And, um, and I think the other, the other seven states that, that got the nasty gram from Miguel Cardona, uh, they, if they're not preparing, they should be because I'm sure they'll come after them next. And whatever happens in Arizona is going to set the precedence for all the other states that are not complying and the districts as well that have all yeah. been sort of sliding. Because, you know, we look at district plans all the time. And and a lot of times we see that they don't really 100% comply. And what I know from working in federal contracting is that you're either compliant or you're not. There's no, exactly. there's no almost being pregnant. There's, there's, <laughs> My neighbor has a really loud car. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, yes. He's got a muscle car and he picks now to start it up. Great. I might have to just like for two seconds, go have a word. Um, but can you hear that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll ignore yeah. it for a bit. If it continues, then we'll let you go talk to your neighbor. Yeah. yeah. So All the right. other thing, that, one thing that we, oh, sure. Yeah. Well, one yeah. thing that we need to we need to be aware of is that you know this is this is politics in, in its purest form. Uh, a lot of the states that are actually that got the nasty grams are also states that are actually uh, looking into. Uh, well, again, now we're getting political, and now we're getting into another controversy, which is basically uh, you know um, looking at the uh, at discrepancies in the voter rolls and the and the, and the vote outcomes. Arizona, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, Pennsylvania, Georgia. They got the nasty grams, so it looks to be a concerted effort to uh, go, uh, you know, two birds with one stone in essence, which is, you yeah. know, states that are not complying with that. Well, our federal government's just trying to strong arm us on every front, yep. and 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 what I see from Tennessee is that um, a lot of the states are standing up to them. Texas is is one that I think is Texas is always the hero of every story. I swear, but they're. They actually have uh, an entire city, Brady, Texas, that gave all of their federal COVID relief money back to the government. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It was only it was only one point three million dollars, but they looked at the requirements and the city got together with their citizens and said, we're not doing this. Yeah. And they actually gave back about five hundred and seventy thousand dollars and then said no to the second payment and then right after that there were 60 something municipalities in texas that did the same thing so it it is possible to break free from Mm -hmm. the federal strongholds in Mm -hmm. states school districts can can say no to the sr3 money Um, cities can say no to COVID relief money States can say no. And the really disturbing part is that the, the timeline of this money shows um, shows a really criminal behavior on the part of the federal government because the the ARP Act was signed on March 11th of 2021. And the first set of SR3 money, which was the most money that's ever been given to states, to schools, ever in the history of federal giving money. They gave two thirds of that money to states for their schools on the 23rd of March. And then a month later on April 22nd, 
was when the interim final requirements were released and added to the ARP Act. And those were all the requirements for the masking, for the testing, for the quarantines and the ice, all the CDC related requirements, the SEL, social emotional learning, all the mental health requirements. That all came out a month after two thirds of the ESSER three money was given. And then a month after they submitted, the state submitted their state plans, then they were given the rest of the money. So every state knew they got two thirds of that giant pile of money. Then they found out what they were going to have to do in exchange for that money. And then they had to submit their state plans showing how they were going to comply with those requirements. And then every district had to do the same by the end of last summer. And every state did it. They all signed. There's a signatory block on about page three of every state plan. And it says by signing, we agree to comply with the assurances in Appendix C. Flip to that page and it says, there it is. You will comply with all ARP Act and, and, and all ESSER three requirements. That's a big switch. That's yeah. a big switch. Yes. But but what's but what's even worse is that every state knew and mm -hmm. they signed it anyway. They signed it there anyway. There wasn't a single state that that said, time out here. You yeah. gave us ESSER one money in 2020, you gave us ESSER two money, which was a little more, then you gave us a huge pile of money in ESSER three, two thirds of it, and then you try to strong arm us? That's racketeering. But didn't they have within the language something like as a private citizen, if somebody had come to you and said, hey, I got a lot of money, I'm gonna give it to you, you know? <laughs> but just say there's in this yeah. fine print, it says later on, I'm going to have some requirements that you're going to have to follow to get this money, but I'm not telling you what they are now. Yeah. That's and they, well, that's what happened. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, in a, in a human to human, smaller situation, people would have said, whoa, 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 what do you mean requirements are to come and you're not telling yeah. me what they are. Right. So they yeah. basically sold their soul to the federal government yeah. and said, okay, I guess we'll there's nothing money. you can tell me that would make me say no to this money. So bring yeah. it on, you know? And every state had an opportunity to say, no, we're not doing this. And you know something? I don't even think they have to give all of it back. Just the one third that they were given after the interim final requirements were released on April 22nd. Because all the money before that, they weren't required to do these things. So okay. they could have kept ESSER 1, 2, and then two thirds of ESSER 3 money and then said, no, we're not doing this. And districts as well, every district had an opportunity and it wasn't the school boards. People go to school board meetings and yell at their school board, but most school board members don't know how much money their district took. They don't know about the right. interim final requirements. So we tell people, stop going and screaming at your school boards. They need to be educated about this. Take them the evidence and explain to them what your district did, but it's your superintendent that completed the district plan. And he okay. got all the information about community engagement and what they were needing funds for. That's who's your, that's who your belly button is. Well, and you know, um, back when I was in Washington State and I attended a couple of um, local school board meetings, the superintendent for that district was always at the meetings. So how is he not telling them? What's going on? That's pretty interesting. He's sitting there yeah. being quiet while the board's getting yelled at, and he knows that he's the one who took the money or she. Well, 
Do you, do you think that he's going to deliberately put a target on his back or her no, back? but you would think behind the scenes, he'd, he'd say, Hey guys, you need to know this. And um, yeah. by the way, I'm going think. on vacation. Right. But yeah, yeah indefinitely. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of superintendents. We're hearing from, from parents uh, that are part of our takedown groups that um, superintendents are, are in mass numbers. They're either retiring or they're quitting. Yeah. And some of them are being fired. And we have a lot of school board members in our takedown groups on Telegram, and they're telling us, I had no idea. Yeah. And now that I know, I'm taking yeah. this information back to the rest of our board. Yeah. As, like I started the show, and Javier, don't forget your thought. That gives me hope because, you know, every time something really bad happens, more people learn the bigger picture, the bigger corruption, what the real story is. And yeah. that momentum grows and an educated public grows and the push at, for freedom grows. So yeah. that is so exciting to hear. Javier? Well, one of the things that we have to remember is that every contract and every grant is, is, a, is a negotiation. So each and every state district and superintendent basically had the right to say, we will take your money, but we will put an addendum saying we will not comply with any and all indications that contradict public health, safety, and personal freedom. And they could yeah. have slid that in, and the federal government would have said, okay, we have how many? We have 32,000 or 3,200 um, individual uh, counties and, and God knows how many districts. Are we going to go through each and every one, or are we just going to do a blanket statement? Mm. No, if they didn't yeah. do that, that's on them. They yeah. could have done that. That's right. And, you know, we look at thousands of, of district plans, thousands of them since since the, since about um, I think the first one was submitted in about July of last year. And we started looking at just random states when we discovered all Tennessee's documents. Then we wondered, I wonder if all the other states have the same. And because of my background in federal contracting, I recognize that the, our state plan and our district plan were templates based on the requirements and the interim final requirements. So then it was really easy for us to find these evidence documents for every single state. And that's when we said, we need to set up telegram groups to start putting all this state information in so people can use it. And now we're actually training speakers in our state groups because I, I was invited to Hawaii this month and I'm not going to Hawaii because I'd have to wear a mask for how many hours on a plane? I'm not doing that. But we have a Hawaii group and we have really active members there. So now we're actually training people in our state groups to take our PowerPoint presentation that we use to give presentations about this information and training them to go out into their states and their communities. And we're just duplicating our efforts so that we don't have to travel to all 50 states. It's the same mm -hmm. message. And they know how to get all of their specific district and state information from the Telegram group. So now we're just getting the word out even more. And people are excited to do it. Yes, this is great. I'm excited to, to turn... Uh... To my own county here um and i know we have a really really uh, we have an awesome washington group yay that's yeah. fantastic you, you probably actually know some of the people in there i'll bet yeah i bet i do yeah that's that's exciting and you know i see that we've already um halfway through the show and i hate to there's such good information here but i want to turn us now to the other major project and that's where you're looking at the federal money going to hospitals yes. perpetuating uh, yeah 
I'll, I'll let you take yeah. over there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the, the Adam Group was actually established when we when we started looking into the federal money going to hospitals. We really started looking at that because of we were hearing rumors early in 2021. We were actually hearing hearing it back in 2020 a little bit, but in the spring and summer of 2021, it was so pervasive here in Tennessee. We just thought these people cannot be crazy. And, and I, I understand how ICUs work and I understand what goes on in hospitals. And, um, and I don't have the clinical experience, but I do have the administrative experience. And I've had, just had a lot of experience dealing with hospitals in the past 35 years. And, um, and so when we hear things like people's patient, the patient rights being violated, people being left alone and not being given food and water, when we hear about people being forced medications against their will and consent, we just thought there are just too many people coming to us um, asking for help. And so we established the organization, the Adam group, and it's the Adam, A-D-A-M group.net um, to, to help people stay out of hospitals. It's just, that's our mission. Um, and so while we were looking into the funding for hospitals, we established that group and the, the Adam group is simple. It's very simple. It helps educate people about how they can prevent COVID and then also how they can find a good primary care doctor who will treat them with the right medications, early treatment that works, that saves lives to keep them out of the hospital. And then the third part, unfortunately, I would love to become obsolete, but that's the advocacy side where families come to us and they already have loved ones in the hospital and they either can't get in to see them or they're well enough, but can't get out. And so if patients are well enough, and we work with a lot of doctors and nurses outside the hospitals, and even we even work with some doctors and, 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 um, and nurses inside the hospitals um, covertly to, to help us rescue patients who are well enough to leave, who just need supplemental oxygen and high dose vitamins and, and the right protocol like the FLCCC protocols and the Zelenko protocol and budesonide, and they, they can, they're, they're fine if they can get home and get those things. So we work with doctors and nurses who help us get those patients out of the hospital and treat them at home. And, and I can tell you that every single person, and it's been, it's over 3000 in Tennessee, plus we have Adam group outreach groups in, in about a dozen other states. And I don't even know how many thousands they've helped, but every single person that we've given the preventive protocols to and introduced to doctors to help them treat their, their COVID at home, 100% survival rate, 100%. But from our experience working with patients in hospitals, who are really too sick to get out because once they go into the hospital, the hospital treats them inappropriately with the wrong drugs at the wrong time in the wrong doses. And they, they advance very quickly to needing dialysis and people di dialysis isn't something that you need for COVID. That's a result of remdesivir. 
And so these patients are put on remdesivir, usually against their will, and then they're moved quickly to the, to the ventilators, and then they die. And most of them die alone. But if we can fight to get families in to be with them, that's the other part of our advocacy work, because it, it is just horrific how many stories we've heard mm -hmm. that we know. And we've seen with our own eyes from being on site at hospitals with families how many people die alone on ventilators because they just won't let the families in. There's yeah. so much going on in hospitals that they don't want people to see or know about. And that, and, you know, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. But I just want to tell okay. um, listeners, especially those in Tennessee, that there are a couple of good bills that are moving through our legislature here that would require advocates to be in the room. Right. Um, you know, following certain hospital protocols, but they could not. It was the most heart-wrenching story that mm. the legislator uh, put forward, how it was brought to her. Basically, there was a situation where um, a daughter came to her legislator and said that her her father was having panic attacks in the hospital. It's frightening to be treated for COVID in the hospital right. or yeah. what they're doing to you. And he could be calm when the mother was there and they were trying to get the time she was allowed to visit ex expanded that uh, from two to eight hours. That's all this thing. Just give us eight. We think that, you know, we can help him calm if you at least give us eight. And they said, no, if we do that for you, we have to do it for everybody. Even though they knew this patient was, was, having these intense anxiety. And then one day the, um, the daughter's phone rang and her father had had a panic attack so bad that night in the hospital, he had a heart attack and he passed away. I bet and there so, were, I bet there were a lot more contributing factors than just an anxiety attack. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure I'm I'm sure there were, but you know, that was the dry, I, I would think medical malpractice here, but you know, tragically, um, any COVID case, um, and and I don't recall for sure. So if this was a COVID case, if it's if it wasn't, uh, you know, I apologize. But in any, if that had been a COVID case, you could not sue the hospital because they are protected by the Prep Act for mm -hmm. pretty much anything they do, unless it is can be proven like intentional like mm -hmm. manslaughter or something. And that's almost impossible because mm -hmm. there was a there was an amendment made to the PREP Act that um, if, if any healthcare professional was questioned about uh, care they provided using, it's called covered countermeasures mm -hmm. that are covered under the PREP Act. And that's the entire NIH protocols and the COVID shots. So pretty much everything that had to do with the treatment of COVID in hospitals and COVID shots. And, and if, if it went to court, the only thing that, that's not covered under the PREP Act is, is called willful misconduct. And you, that's impossible to prove because it says in the amendment that if any healthcare provider believes that their provision of care was the right thing to do, then they're covered. They they're covered for from liability. Wow. It's basically yeah. you know that that sort of blanket liability would allow for you know basically uh, a, a doctor working in a concentration camp in Germany. Right. Say he was so there's. I just believed it was the right thing to do. Yeah. It's yeah. so complete and so subjective that. Well, yeah. there are, there are so many contributing factors to this. So our research on this led to uncovering just how embedded um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid are in all of this. And 
we discovered that the, the massive denial of patient rights and some of the really horrible, egregious behavior um, treatment of patients all stemmed from CMS waivers that were granted starting in March and April of 2020. And, and I'll tell you about just a few of these waivers because it explains so much about patients being left alone, patients not receiving food and water, um, or in a lot of cases, and we've seen the evidence of this, patients being restrained in their beds and not being able to get up. And so they soil their linens and they're left for over 24 hours in their own waste. Yeah, yeah, and they're you know contacting their loved ones saying, "AJ, your your papers are close to your mic there a little bit. Oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> that's okay. That, um, that they're lying in their own waste, and that they've called a nurse, and that um, that no one will come and and help them. And so, I, you know, I I know somebody. In fact, you met the same person um, this week in in Nashville, AJ, who that happened to one of her relatives, she walked in the room and her relative was completely soiled and had been for hours with nobody yep. changing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, some of the other really glaring uh, CMS waivers that we saw are that um, no, there's no patient care plan needed for every patient because there, there is a, there is a specific DRG. What group. does that stand for? DRG is diagnosis-related groups that CMS set up for COVID, and that's a very strict protocol. You, you come in, you get a test, that's a DRG that they get paid for. The test is positive and they're admitted, that's a DRG they get paid for. And it's all broken down into like steps. And so whenever people go into the hospital and they have COVID, sometimes even if they don't have COVID, um, they're, they're put on this very strict one-size-fits-all protocol which nobody has ever seen in hospitals before. They have always um, done everything to save lives and they've tried new things. And if this doesn't work, let's try this. And if that doesn't work, we'll try this until they're completely out of options. But for COVID patients, for COVID diagnosis, whether they have COVID or not, because a lot of people don't have COVID, but they're put on these very strict one size fits all protocols and they have to stick to that protocol because those sets of DRGs is what the hospital gets paid for when the patient is discharged, alive or dead, mostly dead. And mm -hmm. so those DRGs are what the, the Medicare and Medicaid use to pay the hospitals. And if they follow that protocol exactly at the end, they get a 20% add-on bonus for the DRG sets. And that's 20% on the total hospital bill. But then there is another 20% bonus that they get for what's called NTCAP. And that is for new drugs. And that's for like the, the Paxlovid and the Molnupiravir. Um, it's for things like um, any new any new drugs that come out, it's for NCTAP stands for new COVID-19 treatments add-on payment. Wow. And it's on top. And if they qualify for the 20% add-on for the DRGs, then they'll get another 20% for this new COVID treatments add-on payment. And that's all the new drugs that they add to the NIH protocols as they come out. And these are new 
emergency use authorized, not yet licensed by the FDA, right. very shoddy, small clinical trials, yes. usually a huge list. And I shouldn't say usually all of them that I've seen have a, a huge list of um, contraindications and side effects and some really deep concerns. Now tell me, AJ, is there a single penny awarded to anybody who gives a patient hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin? No, if they violate those covered countermeasures that are laid out in the NIH protocols, then all bets are off. And if people people wonder, why would they say no? I mean, why wouldn't they just try, I mean, even proning, um, high-dose vitamins, they just refuse and they say, we don't do that. Well, why not? Well, this table here explains exactly why. Because this is the table that lists all, all studies for all COVID treatments that exist. And it shows the, um, the improvement rates. It shows the number of studies, the number of patients in the studies, and most importantly, the cost. And yep. so highlighted in yellow. Everybody yeah, and for our radio listeners, she's holding up a graph. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Highlighted in yellow are all of the treatments that are part of the NIH protocols that are that get the bonuses that are paid yeah. out by by Medicare and Medicaid. Paxlovid, seven hundred dollars a treatment. Jeez. And wait, wait, and this is above and beyond the cost of the treatment. This is the bonus for giving the treatment. No, or is this that is the cost, the cost of, the of the treatment. Okay. And okay. when all the costs are added up, when the patient is discharged, alive or dead then the 20% bonus is added for DRGs, then the 20% bonus is added for the for the NT, NT caps. Wow. But um, molnupiravir, $700. Remdesivir is anywhere between $3,100 a treatment to $4,500 a treatment. Um, wow. Convalescent plasma, $5,000 a treatment. So all of these things that they're using in the hospitals, they have very few studies, they have very few patients in the studies, um, here's remdesivir, 28 studies, $3,120 for a treatment. But if you look at all the, the the different treatments that are circled in red, those are all things that are like part of the FLCCC protocols. Ivermectin, um, 80 studies with 127,000 patients, a dollar. Quercetin, $5. Melatonin, a dollar. Povidone iodine, a dollar. Curcumin, $5. Budesonide, $4. Vitamin D, $1. Zinc, $1. Fluvoxamin, $1. So if anybody ever wants to know why these things are rejected in hospitals, you just have to look at this chart and see exactly why, because none of these things make the hospital money. None of them. And they're not, and here's the crazy part, is that all of these things that I just mentioned that are so inexpensive are all mentioned in the NIH protocols. Mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, do you have handy that thing that you showed me this week, that quote that said that, oh, I would love for you yes. to read. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So in the NIH protocols, um, they say very clearly that they can't recommend the use of ivermectin. They say there's insufficient evidence by the panel to recommend either for or against the use of ivermectin and that the results from adequately powered, well-designed and well-conducted clinical trials are needed to provide more specific information. But in the same, <clears throat> in the same NIH protocols, 
they they mention ivermectin 144 times and list 101 clinical trials and studies. Remdesivir is mentioned 305 times and they only list 26. So the document that can't even recommend the use of ivermectin does exactly that in the NIH protocols. But probably the most important thing in the NIH protocols that people need to know about, and remember, this is this is the protocol guidelines for the treatment of COVID in hospitals. This is their Bible that they follow, the covered countermeasures. And it says very clearly in the introduction of the NIH guidelines that even though remdesivir is the only FDA approved drug for the treatment of COVID, providers can access and provide investigational drugs um, and, and off for off-label use. And the very last paragraph is the most important. It says, it's important to stress that the rated treatment recommendations and these guidelines should not be considered mandates. That's number one. And that the choice of what to do or not to do for an individual patient is ultimately decided by the patient and its provider and their provider. Wow. <laughs> so, and yeah, and I mean, it says that, but here's the thing. I mean, we don't, we don't bash doctors in hospitals. We do not bash them because most of them, I think, would like to prescribe other things, but their sure. hands are tied. In Tennessee, and I know a lot of other states, doctors are being watched very carefully, and they're being warned and threatened that if they talk about ivermectin or HCQ or high-dose vitamins, and if they don't push the shot, and push the NIH protocols in hospitals, they're gonna lose their license. And it's so happening I, in Tennessee. Yeah. I, I need to push back a little bit on this. We need to go after those doctors. I know that we're trying to make sure that, you know, we can we can bring people to the fold, but at this point, carrot and stick. Yeah. We need to go after these doctors because they made an oath. That's right. Their patients. Right. Yeah. And if they did not give informed consent, and I guess any and all these NIH guidelines still require informed consent. So they're now in violation of international law as well as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights 100%. and the Nuremberg Code. Yeah, Here's the thing. Doctors need to make choice right now. I violated my oath. I may have my license pulled, but I need to make this, this stand right now. I either tell, I either go with what the, the administrators are doing, which they don't have the license, or I stick with my patient, which is my responsibility. Yeah. And, so, and I've, I've known so many doctors here in Washington that have moved on to other hospitals in other states that said mm -hmm. they could not take it anymore and they were not willing to go by those guidelines. That is an ethical and moral statement and as well as a path that you need to take. And for any doctor out there, nurse that is doing there, you have an obligation morally legally and spiritually to do what's right by your patient and if you know that that's not right it's on you yeah, yeah. and these and i know that a lot of the doctors um that we see continually in these medical records for people who have died we see the same names of doctors in these hospitals right. but we we have we have in a, in a couple of hospitals and yeah. we have doctors that are really working undercover for us to try to help patients Sure. and finding excuses to not put them on the protocol. And we have several nurses who actually have help, uh, helped us sneak patients out the back doors because they knew what was coming. They knew that they were going to be put on these protocols and that they shouldn't be. And so they're finding ways to, 
like just sneak them out the back doors to their families and they contact us so we can find the doctors who will treat them appropriately and they survive. Wow. I just realized we, we've got maybe two, oh, two minutes. Hey, yeah. Nathan just told us two minutes. So AJ, this has been a fabulous conversation. You've brought so much information and woven in there is hope because you've empowered us and given us ideas that there's information we can take to our communities locally to make change. Please provide to, to listeners and viewers the best place to find all this information. Um, repeat the, the school one and then the hospital information. Uh, for schools, um, go to Telegram and go to uh, do find my takedown group on Telegram and just put in your state. And um, TN Liberty Network, uh, just an amazing group of volunteers. Um, we we have a private group on Telegram, but we also have a Facebook page. So you can go to TN Liberty Network on Facebook and join us there and ask questions. Um, but we're, we have a small part of our white paper on the healthcare angle finished, and that's the financial incentives to hospitals. But we have a much larger that involves about 24,000 pages of research. Wow. And when that comes out, it's going to be very comprehensive. And we'll probably release it on Del Big Tree Show since he Fantastic. broke the story. But, um, but follow us on our Facebook group and we'll be let, releasing information about when that white paper we, will be available and it will be public domain so anybody okay. can have it. That's great. AJ Priest, thank you so much for joining us. Javier, thank you. You've thank been you. listening to An Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we've got Christina Hildebrand from California, a voice for choice advocacy. We will be right back. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. 
Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. We need a revolution. There's only one solution. I need somebody to show me, somebody to show me the love. We need a revolution. Hello and welcome back to an Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming live to CHD TV. So glad you're here with us this Friday afternoon. Um, I'm here with Javier Figueroa. Hello, Javier. Glad you're with us today. Um, I'm in the state of Tennessee and Javier, uh, maybe he stepped away. He'll be here in just a second. He He's in the state of Washington. Um, and what I... I you know, in the first hour, I mentioned with our guest, A.J. DePriest, who's also here in Tennessee, a couple of really good pieces of legislation that are moving through. Um, we've got an um, ivermectin without prescription, but behind the pharmacy counter with consultation bill that's making progress. There's a, a, a bill that respects and acknowledges that natural immunity is equal to or superior than anything the COVID shots can deliver. Um, there are bills making progress that would make it so that you, the hospitals have to allow you to have an advocate with you at all times in the hospital and several of those with, with different situations. So some really good legislation moving forward. And I want people in Washington state, which is, which is very politically different than Tennessee to take hope. When when I was living in Washington um, and very active, beautiful pieces of legislation would be drafted, would find sponsors, be filed, and then they would sit. And they would sit and go nowhere because of the, the political energy and the political will and the political mindset um, in Washington state was all, is still... Now, um, the majority is pro-vaccine, pro-government, sort of telling you and your children what to do, I'm, you know, on many levels. But I'm here to say the only difference between Washington and Tennessee, because I know the heart and soul of a lot of people in Washington state, they're freedom-loving, compassionate, kind, good-to-your-neighbor kind of people. They know how to write good bills. The only difference is the people, the majority of people sitting in seats in the legislature in Washington do not want to move forward these bills and the people in Tennessee do. So you have the power over that, right? If you're in Washington state, if you're in California, if you're in any state, the people sitting that are your commissioners that are your mayors, that are in your legislature, that are in your governor's office, that's you, that you put them there. So if you are 
very unhappy with what's going on in your state and you have not made it a major part of your life right now to change who's sitting in those seats, then you're going to have to just accept what you get because you're not fighting it. But if you do fight it, I tell you, it's a whole different thing. Javier being here in Tennessee, it was actually easier to run bills in Washington. It was easier to go as an advocate mom and, and look at these bills because they didn't go anywhere. The fight was over. They were like, they went, they died, nothing happened. And then we were always on the defense fad, fighting bad bills, right? But here in Tennessee, the good bills move and you have to, you have to educate the public and you have to educate people. <laughs> and it's a lot more work, but it's so gratifying. Um, but that can be achieved. That can be achieved in Washington. I know it can. Um, pay attention to who's running for office. Get out there, support who you believe in, and change the energy. Um, <clears throat> and Javier, our next guest, Christina Hildebrand, in the state of California, is coming on here. Um, she knows very deeply what it is I'm talking about, because if there's any state worse than Washington, it's probably California. I don't know if we were to have a, a race between who's worse Washington, Oregon, California, New York, you know, I don't, I don't know who would win this beauty contest, but I think right now California's winning as far as the legislation that would make you fall out of, out of your seat. Um, so let me see. Oh, did, did I lose it? I've still got it. Is, uh, do we have Christina with us? Is she able to come on? There she is. Hello. Hello. <laughs> They're good to see you. It's so good to see you. I've just got the little bio, actually, that I found on A Voice for Choice that I'm going to read about you, if you don't mind. Please do. <laughs> yeah, so A Voice for Choice was founded by Christina Hildebrand. Christina is passionate about ensuring people know what they are putting into their bodies, be it food, air, water, or medications. For the past 12 years, Christina has spent many thousands of hours researching and sharing her knowledge with her local community. However, with the growth of big ag and big pharma's influences on U.S. politics, Christina realized that she needed to take this to a different level and educate the masses on their right to inform choice and transparency of what goes into their bodies. Christina has brought together a team of talented individuals who work tirelessly well, you know, I'm going to pause right there, Christina, because that word tirelessly, I know what that re in reality, it means you work even though you're tired. Yes. <laughs> right? Because I know you're tired, yes. <laughs> but, but you go on anyway, anyway, tirelessly on the issues with a choice, uh, a voice for choice takes on. Her team is supported by vetted grassroots volunteers fighting for the common cause, as well as a network of resources and experts. This allows a voice for choice to expand the team when necessary, but also keeps overhead and costs low. Um, a Voice for Choice, Inc. is 100% financially funded by individual grassroots contributions, as is Informed Choice Washington, I'll have you all know, supported by countless donated volunteer hours, same for Informed Choice Washington, although I think we have a couple of small staff positions now that are paid that are holding us together. Thank you very much. Uh, Christina donates all of her time without taking any form of payment for the thousands of hours she spends working on a voice for choice issues. So welcome, Christina. Yeah. 
Um, so could you clarify for me, is there, are there two groups, a, a voice for choice and a voice for choice advocacy? Could Correct. you explain yeah. the difference? I was going to mention that. So a yeah. voice for choice is our 501c3 nonprofit. And through that, we mostly educate. Uh, and then our advocacy side of it, which is our 501c4, is a voice for choice advocacy. And that's where we do most of our lobbying and legislative work. And I will say that that's probably where we spend most of our time. Um, mm -hmm. Also, since since that, that bio was put out, or I haven't updated it since the beginning of the year, um, for Voice for Choice Advocacy, we actually hired um, a few people uh, that are on full time. So we have a, with, with the legislation that yeah. came about in California this year, I was just like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this alone or with our two lobbyists alone. But, um, and so we, we have hired a, a small staff, which has been super helpful, but we are- Well, we are congratulations. Yes. Congratulate. Well, you know, we're up against trillion dollar industry and our yeah. own government. And it is so nice when those of us who've been working without pay um, and, and happy, I'm still happy to do so. I don't need to make the money. So I'm happy right. to continue volunteer my time. But it's so wonderful. We can bring on some paid staff so we can really work as professionally as possible. Yeah. Before we go further, let me introduce you to my co-host and who I often just talk over and you barely get the word <laughs> edgewise. Um, Javier Figueroa, PhD in neuroscience biology who brings some brains to this program um nice Javier, to have you met this is yeah. my first time and i am glad to hear that someone is fighting in california especially with the legislature that is dead set on just being anti-science yes <laughs> yeah, I, yeah so you know i watched the higher wire yesterday and yep. um there somebody from does she work with you now forgive me i don't remember her name yes. who was on Bone from uh puck uh, and they are one of the organizations that works with us um, with the Voice for Choice Advocacy. We, I, I think finally this year in California, we have brought together all the organizations, many of the key organizations, I should say, you know, California is a huge state. Um, and so there are a lot of organizations that are working on this legislation, both locally and on a state level. And most of the state level um, organizations have come together and are really, I think it's partly why we've been somewhat successful already in this session. Um, mm -hmm. We'll get into that, but, but we really are working much more cohesively, which we haven't done uh, in the last two major battles in California, which were in 2015 and 2019. Yeah, herding cats, as we call it, is difficult to do. The people who become advocates at the grassroots level tend to be very strong-minded, very focused on their own mission. And mm -hmm. it can be very hard to pull those sort of groups together, right? Yeah. But it's it's being done. It's being done yeah. on a national level. It's being done on the state level out of necessity. Um, and I'm so glad to see it being done. Now, you might not have this, but is there... Is there a website or a place that somebody hearing this who in their area of California wants to get involved? Is there a one-stop shop and you can go see a list of some groups that you think would be worth contacting? Yeah, so we are under the umbrella of uh, Convention on Health Rights. And if you go to conventiononhealthrights.org, uh, that lists out all of the groups that are involved in that. We meet at least once a week uh, to talk about the legislation updates you know, things like expert testimony, when the hearings are, what we're, you know, what next steps so that we're all sending out the same or similar mm -hmm. action alerts and that type of thing. So um, that that would be the place I would send people to. And there you can see the list and then any of those organizations or the majority of those organizations are um, as, are active. And if you go to their individual websites, um, you can see what's going on there. 
That is so wonderful. So I'm going to let you decide what we need to talk about. What do listeners and viewers need to know uh, so that they can take action and and help you and and help stop? Yeah. (laughs) I think the biggest thing, you know, to go through is just what we're, what, where we've come from in California. You know, you're, you're saying which, which is the worst state. I'm going to go with California. I'm (laughs) New York's up there. I'll give New York their, their close. Um, Washington's also up there in Oregon, but as you said before, you know they don't. Bills will sit more, or they they'll get amended in those states. Whereas in New York and especially California, I just feel like we are being bombarded. Uh, I think now, especially so, you know, we're the one of the only states that has these COVID legislation bills uh, brought forward this year. And you know, even our state is going away from COVID as the pandemic and going to an endemic piece of it. Um, but our legislature, especially one one favored senator, Senator Pan, that has brought forward all of these bills in the past years, um, is is really gung ho this year uh, on yeah. on his legislation and bringing COVID legislation forward, and um, you know creating. He created a vaccine work group which has seven members, and basically that's his. You know, I believe he's behind all the bills and he just sort of handed out to the seven people um, and said, here's your bill, here's your bill, here's your bill, so that he wasn't the author on all of these all of these bad bills. Um, but he is truly the bane of our existence. And thankfully, he turns out this year and he hasn't said what he's going to do next, but he's not running for another office. So um, yeah. we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully he won't go on to bigger and better things. But well, he, he might want to leave California pain. so that he doesn't have to live under the laws that he yeah. created. He right. might well, want to no, escape. <laughs> I truly believe he thinks that this is, this is the right thing. You know, I mean, I, 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 you know, he was in his committee hearing yesterday with two masks on and he requires masks in his office and that kind of thing. And, you know, I think he, but he truly lives in that and breathes in it and believes in it. Um, even though, you know, the rest of the state of California has come out of that, you know, has left the mask era, you know, some people still wear them for sure, but, but, you know, it's, it's optional, but he's still wearing two masks. So it's, you know, it is, I don't obviously leaving here anytime soon. I think he quite enjoys living here. (laughs) And and I'm sure everybody has sent him the hundreds of studies showing that the masks are both not effective and harmful. So it's it's absurd that, you know, a supposed man of science, a doctor would do this. Now, I'd like you to go through some of these just Mm -hmm. historically mind-blowing bills and Keep in mind, listeners, keep in mind, if you were to take the word COVID out of these bills and just hear what they were are doing, mm-hmm. it and and I feel, I mean, whatever it is that's driving Senator Pan and those are with him, they may feel that it's about COVID and public health, but you've got to know whoever's feeding the ideas to him, know that he's just being used to um, put in infrastructure of using public health in order to control society. So you go ahead. Tell us, tell us what's on the menu. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to go back historically actually to 2019 because there was a bill that we, a voice for choice advocacy opposed and tried to get stopped and tried to at least get the language amended, but it was really the bane of our existence during COVID. And that was AB 262 in 2019 and Senator Lara brought it forward and it uh, the the language in there says that our local health officers, so our county health officers, uh, and we have, I think, 58 counties in California, the local health officers can take 
any and all action they deem necessary in the point of a, what is it? Not, not an endemic, but, but it's not a pandemic. It's something that includes three people or a threat of that. And so basically at any time they can, they can put in whatever health orders they want and those stick as law because of this overreaching, you know, this overarching law. And so that, that law in and of itself, you know, we saw, we didn't know that COVID was coming, but we really thought that that was an issue that these health officers basically have, they can do, they're not elected in California and they can do whatever they want if three people, or there's a threat of people, three people with the same disease, virus, whatever it is. Three and so people. Yeah. And the threat, you know, I mean, we're in a threat of something all the time because we have airplane yeah. travel, you know, I yeah. mean, there's there anywhere in the world where three people have something, uh, whether it's the measles or the flu or yeah. some new virus, um, we fall into that. And so it really, you know, it, that bill alone was probably the crux of sort of, I'm not going to say it was the start of the end because it was certainly wasn't the start. If you look back in California history, this has been going on for about 10 years, yeah. um, if not more, but but there's a clear pattern. But that was one of the key bills. So, so keep that in mind while I go through some of the bills that are okay. up this year. One of yeah. the other things to remember is that, or to know, is that California is a full-time legislature every single year. So our legislature is in session from January until September. Um, oh no! They basically, don't do anything else other than pass bills. So oh, in many bad. other states, like you know, te- I don't know what it is in Tennessee, but in Texas, it's a, you know, I think it's three months every other year. You know, you got a in that you get a whole year and a bit, a year and more than more than a year and a half off of legislation that you don't. And they have special sessions, of course, but you know, for us, it really starts in January and it ends in September every single year, and we have over three thousand bills introduced every single year. So, you know, legislators, this is their full-time job, their staffers are their eyes and ears. Um, so just, just keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through these. That, you know, that is so bad because it, I mean, they're trying to justify their existence and their paycheck and really, I mean, it, and yeah. their re-election, most right. importantly, their re-election. Yeah. Here in Tennessee, it's similar to Washington. They're in session, um, every year, but it's for a short time. They have a short session. I forget how long it is, a couple of months, and then a long session, a few weeks longer. Um, and then they can have special sessions, but you know, the, the less time they spend at the Capitol, the less trouble they can get us in. And that's why I think we we get in so much trouble because we do have this year long legislature. Um, so some of the bills I'm going to highlight, some of the different types of bills that we have going on here in California. Um, There are probably 10 or 11 really bad bills that we're focusing on. Um, You know, some organ, that's the other beauty of having our coalition and and all of these groups working on it is some, some organizations are focusing more on some bills and on other bills. There are, you know, two or three that we're all, that we're all focusing on. Mm -hmm. Um, We have, so SB 871 uh, is PAN's bill that would require the COVID vaccine for daycare through 12th grade. Um, that, you know, is it, we, it hasn't gotten a hearing date. Uh, we have heard rumors that, you know, some legislatures, we know at least one, the uh, education chair, Senator Labor has said she will not be voting for it. So there is at least some pushback on him for that. But, you know, our perspective is why do we even have this this bill, you know, it doesn't, the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. So we're not, and we have no idea, you know, with future variants, if it's, you know, it doesn't seem to work for Omicron. Um, and so, you know, what's the, what's the point of that bill? Um, but if it 
does pass. And, you know, the other piece to keep in mind, because it's Pan's last year, you know, he wants some legacy left for him. So I just, I find it hard to believe that that one would die, but we're hoping, you know, we're hoping that it will at least be watered down completely or that he, you know, that he leaves it to our public health department to, to put, um, put in place. So um, there's, there's that one. The other one that went sort of together with that was AB 1993, uh, which would have required vaccination for all employees and independent contractors in California. And thankfully, last week, uh, the author pulled that bill. Uh, She pulled it because the opposition was uh, people who they usually lock arms with. So it was labor, uh, unions, um, and, and other Democrat, you know, strongholds. And we are in an election year this year, which helps us because uh, they need the, you know, they need the money and the funding for their elections. So that one was actually pulled. When she says pulled, she did, she put, you know, she specifically used the words paused and on hold while she yeah. negotiates with these, <laughs> yeah, while she negotiates with these, uh, with these organizations and hopes that they understand that vaccination is a good thing. So our perspective is that one isn't dead, dead. You know, we're hoping it, it allows us to breathe a little bit on that front, but, yeah. um, but it's, and- you know, we are still concerned it could come back uh, again because we have the whole year. If it's not back by the end of May, it's unlikely to be back. But, uh, mm-hmm. but it could come back. Um, and I hope um, voters in California are savvy enough to know that anybody who even ever put their name on such a bill, um, they need to question their whether they're fit for office, that they would yeah. even think of this as... Yeah. Yeah, um, it was interesting on that one. Um, so one of our legislators, one of our assembly members down in the San Diego area, uh, she before the or just as the bill was being pulled, she asked to have her name removed. And she said, you know, it's because San Diego has such high vaccination rates and all of this stuff. And, and you know, they had high vaccination rates when she put her name on the bill. Um, I'm pretty sure she removed it because many of those organizations that opposed it, uh, part of her district is in is in the sort of farmland area. And so I'm pretty sure she pulled it, pulled her name off of it because she didn't want to go up and, and have her right. name associated with it anymore. So it does it does help when um, Democrat, you know, Democrat organizations uh, do oppose these bills. And so that's one of actually one of our action items for people is to if you know of you know, businesses or organizations that are Democrat minded that would be against any of these bills to have to make sure that they write a letter of opposition. Excellent. Um, Okay. One of the other bills that I know has surfaced in a few other states, not too many, but a few other states um, is the minor consent bill, which is at SB 866, which would allow 12 year olds to um, get vaccinations without the without parental consent. Um, that bill, we are hopeful that the, uh, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, in Washington, D.C. in 2020, a similar bill was passed for 11 plus year olds to get the vaccine without parental consent. And um, a, a few organizations just won uh, an, at least a preliminary injunction uh, against that. And so yeah. we are using that as uh, impetus to say, you know, you can't pass this because of the uh, and the, the sort of highlight talking point is that the national vaccine uh, uh, injury, no, national vaccine information, childhood vaccine information act that was passed in 1986 requires the parent to be given yeah. the vaccine information statement. And it is the parent that's required to get that. And so, um, and, and the parent is the one, if there is an injury that would 
would report it to the um, compensation program. And right. so we're hopeful that that will help us sort of beat that bill or at least get it, you know, significantly right. um, changed. And you, what one of the things I love about that decision and what that judge saw and acknowledged, and it was a brilliantly, you know, um, put forward case, mm-hmm. every state that is abusing the mature minor doctrine to allow minors to get any vaccine. Yep. Um, and in many states, it's age 14 and up. That's yeah. a violation of federal law. Yeah. So right now, um, in all states, we need to make sure the public health departments understand they're violating federal law. Um, yeah. yeah, I would love to put that by a couple of people at the Washington State Department of Health, because I've got some email threads from a couple of years ago where they I was arguing with them about how the mature minor doctrine was being used and interpreted. And they just pretty much said, Oh, we leave it up to the doctors. It there's no real clear language on it. And, you know, and they should have known that it was fit. And they, they consulted with their legal department Mm -hmm. and I'm surprised it took it. I mean, that act's been there since 86. Um, But maybe it's just more and more people are really understanding um, how much the miners are being targeted. Uh, well, and I think here. It's, yeah. yeah, I think it's also that, you know, the, these lawyers that are trying to work out how to fight these laws are mm-hmm. getting more, I don't want to say creative because it's not creativity, but they're looking deeper into these other laws to see, you know, yeah. where is it really budging, you know, bumping up right. against that federal law. So I think that, you know, to me, I'm, I'm thankful to those lawyers to have looked yes. into that more. You know, I knew the, I knew the act was in place and I knew that, you know, the vaccine information statement was required, but mm-hmm. I didn't realize that it was required to be given to the parent or the guardian of a child. So, you know, it's yeah. it, my, the little language there makes a big, big difference. And so um, I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's, I think it's great that we've got, I think the other thing, you know, I mean, we've all been at this for so long, but I think with new, um, life and new eyes and ears on this. People are looking at different pieces of it where, you know, we weren't necessarily yeah. looking at that. We have a, we have a law in California that allows 12 plus year olds to get um, prophylactics uh, sexually when it's a, about sexually transmitted diseases. It doesn't specifically say the HPV and hepatitis B vaccine, but they are included. And so I would love um, you know, I, I think they need to win that case in Washington, D.C. But once it's won, I think there's I think we'll see in all the states that have minor consent laws um, that we will see some of these lawsuits pop up. They're trying to push that there. There's a bill right now that we've got an action campaign against in Tennessee, where what's called a caption bill that just has vague language was mm-hmm. replaced with nobody knowing, with language that was changing the minor law having to do with STDs and adding a couple of words, including minor consent without parental knowledge or, you know, approval, treatment to prevent STDs, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so we knew what this meant. It's just, it's just amazing. And it was slipped in. Um, the first committees who heard it didn't understand what they were hearing because they were gaveling through the bill so quickly. And the, and the legislators who presented them said, oh, it's just going to allow a doctor to talk about abstinence and things like that. No, they, they, just, don't, they don't say that it has yeah. to do. I mean, our, our law doesn't say anything about vaccination. It, it says no. prophylactic treatment of STDs. Yeah, which, ours says you know, preventive. Or, or maybe it's preventive. But, no, I don't know the exact, but it's, yeah. it's basically, you, it sounds 
much better than it is. It, it, it is, like yeah. yeah. But the um, beauty is here in Tennessee, when the legislators learn that it's it's violating parental rights, which yeah. they learned after the fact, um, they are very unhappy. And I feel very confident it will not become law that's right. here. And in fact, I'm going to go look up your bill, your law, I mean, and say, see, the language in California is doing what we know the language would do here. So yeah. I, I, I'm sorry that you're living it to help us prevent it, but <laughs> that's California does that, right? <laughs> yeah. You teach us lessons. <laughs> um, then there are a couple of other bills. Um, another one that Senator Pan has has to do with COVID testing. Um, and basically it started off as a bill. We weren't actually, our organization wasn't opposing it. We were just watching it. Um, that would have said that a school, that pu public schools have to have a COVID testing plan. And that sounded, you know, okay, you know, baseless enough and fine, you have to have a plan. But the, the changes to that have um, really made it that basically they have to, they have to follow what CDPH says, our public health department says. So if the public health department says testing is necessary, then all schools have to, all public schools have to test here. And so we are going um, up against that. Now, the, the key there is, you know, I mean, we know, we know the issues with testing, but also, you know, the, the, the thing that amazes me is, you know, we're going into, or we're already in COVID being endemic and, you know, the rest of the rest of the world, I'm going to say the rest of the U S is living with it just, you know, and getting by. And here in California, we seem to still be wanting to do, you know, testing and vaccinations and requiring all of this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's sort of, I'm going to say passe. And, and I think there's a realization of that here. And, and it's part of the reason some of these bills got, you know, or some that we've got two bills that were pulled, but I think it's, you know, the, the realization here by legislators is, you know, are we really putting this in place? Does this really make sense for the long term when we really don't think that COVID is going to come back with a vengeance? So um, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, we also have some bills that are related to our medical board. Um, one of them actually died yesterday or got pulled yesterday, um, but that really cracked down on our doctors and, and, uh, what they can do. One that's still alive is AB 2098, which basically says that the, the doctors should be disciplined for giving misinformation if they give misinformation and disinformation on COVID-19. Now we're all for getting rid of misinformation. Okay. Let's just, let's just put it there. But the two pieces of language on this, one of them is if they deviate from standard of care on COVID. And the other one is if they go against uh, contemporary scientific consensus on COVID. And I would like anyone to tell me what the standard of care is or what sci contemporary scientific consensus is on COVID today, last week, mm -hmm. two months ago, mm -hmm. three months ago, five months ago, 20 months yeah. ago, March it's 20 whatever months ago. She says. Exactly. And so, you know, we've, we've had conversation, this one at least, you know, the committee staff and the, the other staffers on the bill have recognized that this is, you know, that there is no way that you can discipline a doctor based on that because there just isn't, you know, the, the treatments for COVID and COVID are still evolving. And so you, there is no way you can have standard of care, you know, on a disease or something like, let's take cancer, there's standard of care. Um, but even with that, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't put those two statements in there because there are people that are doing, you know, research and expert. I mean, you look at the Mayo Clinic or St. Jude and their doctors would be called out if we were talking about cancer treatment here. So it's, you know, it's a little bit insane, this bill, and we are expecting amendments on it. So we'll see. We'll see what happens here, there. But, you know, again, these are all bills that, you know, these legislators think are the best thing since sliced bread and, you know, that this should be the way of doing it. Um, Another one that had to do with the medical board, as I mentioned, got pulled yesterday, but it would have allowed. So right now here in California, um, if you if you have a uh, complaint against a doctor, the next step is to ask the patient for their patient records. But if a patient doesn't want to share their patient records, then the medical board has to go to a court and get those subpoenaed. This bill would have allowed a medical investigator to go into the doctor's office and look at all patient records and determine if there was anything there to get a subpoena. And my analogy of this was, it's like a police officer going into a house without a search warrant and saying, oh, I'm just going to look through your house and see if there's anything here. And if we find something, then we'll get a search warrant for your house, which would never fly. Um, So thankfully, that bill was pulled yesterday. and We don't think it's coming back this year. Um, But this is the craziness of California. You know, some of these are are really, uh, you know, going above and beyond. Uh, we have another one that is has to do with it, the immunization registry. So every state, I think it's every state, I feel like there's one state that doesn't have an immunization registry. I don't know if they now do after COVID, but um, every state has their own immunization registry. And ours, they want to um, add to it. Not all of our doctors have to, if you're a doctor, you don't have to be signed up for the registry. Um, they want to ensure that all doctors are. And then the, the key piece here on the immunization registries for your state that you need to look into is whether they're opt in or opt out uh, or what we have, which is you can lock it. You're never opted completely out, but you can lock it from people getting the information. And I will say the states that have opt in immunization registries are the best ones. Um, we have an opt out, but your data always goes in uh, and then you can lock it so that some people like the people that can pull information from it, can't pull information from it. But if you have your vaccine given at a pharmacy or at a, you know, a large uh, clinic, they always put it in. So your data is in the, in the database and, you know, CD, our public health department, et cetera, can um, get, you know, access so, to it. So Christina, you make me think if this is existing already, this database, yeah. how it's being used, why is it that we keep seeing data from areas that will, they say, we don't know somebody's immunization status, especially in regards to if they died from COVID. I mean, not died from COVID, if they, if they, you know, something happened and we don't know the vaccination status. Well, it actually even died of COVID. Yeah. If it really is in there, why, like in Washington recently, Javier, the um, wasn't one of the tag um, slides, or maybe it was a board of health meeting, and they said that eighty percent of the people um, in the hospital for COVID, it was vaccination status unknown. How do you not know the most controversial, talked about shot on the planet? Who does not know that they got the shot? Right. Why? I think Who doesn't know? <laughs> yeah. I think it's an interesting statistic. You know, I can't talk for other states. Uh, here in California, it, I know when you go in, you 
I actually, I don't know that they ask whether you get whether you've had the vaccine or not. But our database for the COVID vaccine, at least, is quite up to date. Um, we we realized that, or I realized that, when we started having lotteries here for getting your COVID vaccine, and there was a weekly lottery that the governor gave away some amount of you know, some various amounts of money, and I was just like, huh, interesting. They know who to put in this lottery system because clearly they have the database, and and exactly. you know our. Our database here in California, I know for the COVID vaccine is pretty is is pretty much complete because most of the COVID vaccines were given at mass vaccination clinics and not in doctors' offices. And so those for sure were entered into our, our immunization registry. I think other vaccines or once they get into the doctor's office, it's less so. But the fact that they're saying that they don't know people who are hospitalized if they've had the COVID vaccine or not, my guess, the only thing I can guess is that they haven't asked it. But if they're reporting that data, why haven't they asked it? Or why haven't, you know, it should should link up in some way. So yeah. I, I don't know why there's, there is that unknown. But I agree with you. I think anyone who has had the COVID vaccine knows they've had it. And anyone who hasn't had the COVID vaccine knows they haven't had it at this exactly. point. Exactly. You know, right. if it was, well, if it was something like the measles vaccine. I get then, you know, especially yeah. in adults, then it's much more. Well, I don't know if I had, well, I had the measles, so maybe I did, or maybe I didn't, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, and huh. um, oh, I Sorry. forgot. It, but the um, we have heard from whistleblowers, nurses yeah. in in the hospitals that the hospital policy is do not ask. Put that mm. down as unknown and do not ask. Yeah, um, which makes sense. Uh, I mean, if you think about what the what they're trying to do with that data, it makes sense. But the the state should still know. I mean, it's just and when you're doing official data, you you um, you take out the personal information, but it should still be on record. I mean, I, again, how can I, I? I why we know why, but why isn't the Department of Health? going to the hospital and saying, you guys need to start asking them their vaccination status. Because, because they don't want you to know that. They, they don't know want to report that family. data. Right? Right? <laughs> That's the biggest piece is they don't want it to say, you know, all these people were vaccinated right. and died. They prefer it to be unknown. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the same for the flu vaccine. It has been for yeah. a long time. The data yeah. will come out that there will be, and and since the flu vaccine is annual, it's not in the past. It's something that you would yeah. have gotten within the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. Somebody yeah. knows. How yeah. can you have that? We have such incomplete data in this nation, and they're making policy with massive data gaps. It's yeah. just absurd. Well, then I would say they're massive choice data gaps, right? I don't think they're actual data gaps. I think they're choosing not to have that data. But that's one of the things with this bill. So the worst part of this immunization registry bill is that they want to now give uh, schools, government entities, the ability to download and it does stay, you know, in a in an emergency. So there is that caveat. But, you know, California has been in a state of emergency, still is in a state of emergency for COVID for two year, more than two years now. So, you know, who knows how long that'll go on for. But if they're in a state of emergency, there are a bunch of schools, HHS, you know, different government entities that would be able to access and download this data and do, you know, assessments of who is vaccinated or pockets of vaccination, that type of thing. And so for us, this is, you know, basically it doesn't say that any of the um, the private data, the private information uh, is going to be removed. Right. It 
doesn't, you know, there's, there's so many privacy issues on this, on this bill. And so that's, you know, that's where we're coming at it from. The other thing that, you know, your viewers should, should be aware of is that there is a bill on the federal level that would give funding to every state that wants it on the immunization registry so that they update their immunization registry, that every state has the same, um, like names for each of the pieces of data that they collect. And the key with that is that that bill, or the, the scary thing with that bill is any state that takes that money, which, you know, why wouldn't they take the money and, and do that, um, means that you can then cross-reference states. So you can mm-hmm. be in Utah and you can look at California. So they will, will have a full federal immunization registry of any state that that is included. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really concerning because that allows something like a vaccine passport to be exactly. able to actually work federally. Right. right now you can't do it because, you know, if you're in California, if let me say if I got the vaccine in Utah, my data would be in the Utah database and not in the California database. And so here in California, there is no way for them to check if I got this or not because I got it in Utah. And so that would, that bill on the federal level is really concerning to us because it would allow every state to come into, you know, uniform Mm -hmm. uh, data and that database then would be state, would be federal rather than on a state level. Right. Yeah. And, um, looking at that federal bill, it's it's one of those images that if you look at it one way, it looks like a frog. And if it did another way, it's a lady with a hat. Right. <laughs> <Yep>. So <laughs> if, if you believe in vaccines and you believe in public health and you believe <clears throat> looking out, bless you, Javier, Thank if you. you're looking Very out well. for looking out for us, you think, well, this is great. If I move, everybody can keep track of my records and I can, it sounds like such a lovely thing, but then you step in our shoes. Those of us who have, you know, kind of whatever pill we took and we can see, and you know, whatever we squint, we're seeing the lady with the hat instead. Um, you're like, we see how it can be used nefariously. We see yeah. it for what it is. Um, and and that's really scary because you it's really pitting at society level, good people against good people. Yeah. Because if you're seeing the frog and you're seeing the lady and you're sitting at the dinner table and, you, you know, with, you know, you're yeah. it's, it's really hard to get somebody to see how you're seeing it. Yeah. Um, but. I guess the beauty of government overreach, especially what we're seeing in California, it's so, it's so absurd and it's so beyond the truth. Everybody knows somebody injured by a COVID shot. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows somebody who's had three COVID shots and who got COVID anyway. Right. Um, I think that's, Go ahead. Sorry. Right. It's revealing the truth. And then when they try to push these legis- this legislation and when their public health department insists on the messaging, which does not ma- match the reality, they wake up and and they begin to refocus and they begin to see what we're seeing. But yeah. we have to have a lot of patience and a lot of grace in our heart for friends and family that have sort of stepped away from us thinking we're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree with you. I mean, I think I, I look back and, you know, I got into this in 2015 when we had our first bad bill, which took away our personal belief exemption for, for childhood vaccines here in California. And I looked at that coming out of it. We lost, you know, severely lost on that one, but I came out of it and I was like, wow, 
the silver lining of this, and I truly felt that they shot themselves in the foot, was you just banded all of us together. You just got us away. Like, but prior to 2015, it was me, my doctor, my ex that knew that my kids, the school that knew that my kids weren't vaccinated. I didn't have other friends that weren't vaccinated. I didn't know who the other people were out there that were, you know, activists mm-hmm. in this. Like, I didn't, I wasn't awake. And suddenly no. I know thousands of people. I would never have known you. I would never right. know both of you if it weren't yes. for this this issue, right? Yeah. And I look at it and, you know, 2019 camp are we swelled even more COVID came. And, you know, while many of the people that were there in 2015 have moved out of California and I understand why, you know, it's woken people up and it's woken people up that were never, you know, never even thought about vaccine, never even thought about medical freedom before that. I just look at it and I think it's a beautiful thing. I think, you know, we are getting there. We're still a long, long way, but just to see, you know, some of these bills pulled to see the activism behind them, to see the number of people that are, that are really incensed by by this. Um, I think we still have a lot of people to wake up, but I think you're right. I think it, you know, to me, it's really, it's getting there. And the further they overreach, the further people are just like, hang on a second. I mean, the, the, the Omicron, you're right. The people who had three vaccines and got Omicron, but that to me was just beautiful because it was just like, okay, and so the vaccine did what? And I'm still sitting here and I haven't been vaccinated and I haven't had, I don't, well, I may have had COVID very, very early on, but I haven't had COVID. And I'm just like, yeah, so we'll, we'll keep talking about that. But it's, you know, and now I say to them, so are you going to get a fourth shot? And they're like, no way I'm going to get a fourth shot because I'm done with this. You know, I got Omicron, I'm good. And it's really, you know, I think it, it, you're right. The overreach, the, the, and especially when our state in California, we're going away from everything else says we're going away from a pandemic. And then when these bills are put in place that, you know, would really infringe again on businesses, on small businesses, you know, it just people are fed up, people are done. Um, and they know they can move to another state that's, that's, you know, going to treat them differently. And so mm-hmm. you know, we've got an exodus here. But, you know, I think the I think the legislature is starting to see it, hopefully, hopefully, we can get more of these bills either pulled or severely amended that they actually, you know, don't do very much. Yeah. Uh, and everybody, like I said, at the top of the hour, just get good people, you know, who will not put forward such legislation, who know such legislation is absolutely absurd, um, yeah. you know, and so it's exciting that it's an election, election year there in um, California. It is. We run, we, California, this is another thing that's bizarre about California, but it's, and I think California is the only state. So California has, rather than a top two party system, we have a top two people system. And so it's really, really tough because we have a, it's why we have a um, Democrat supermajority because we have elections that are running that you basically, you know, you have a Democrat, a Democrat, and a Republican in most other states, the Democrat and the Republican would go off in the in the general election. Here in California, it's the Democrat against the Democrat. And so mm. it's really, really hard to get um, an alternative voice in there um, because, and, and you really, you know, when people say, oh, I'm going to run as a Republican, I'm like, that's not, you know, just put a D after a name, even if you don't believe that. Whatever the opposite of a rhino is, we need them on the Democrat side too. <laughs> I don't know what it would be, but it's, but that's what we, we need here. Um, because it's, it, it is, you know, it, that D is, is, is what gets you in here in California. Yeah. So. I, I, I heard another term on the radio the other day, instead of rhino, he said, we need to be calling them dirt. 
a Democrat in Republican trousers. <laughs> oh, I like that. We need more duds. That's what we need. But no, you need. No, 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 you, no. We need the opposite. You need the opposite. You need a Republican and Democrat not trousers. trousers. Yes. But that doesn't that doesn't make yeah. a nice word. No, that doesn't make a nice word. We need to work out the word, but we need those. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it's tough when the system is set up to, you know, it, to put extra roadblocks in, in place. Yeah. It, it's really tough. So how are we doing on? Oh, we, we've got about five, five, six more minutes is all. So um, what else in these last few minutes do you want um, listeners to know about? I think just, you know, if people are in California, but I think this applies to any state, you know, our our action items are you know, th- we, number one, to meet with legislators and to get to know them, build relationships. And especially when they're not, you know, we only have two months when they're not two, three months when they're not in session. So, you know, that's when they do a lot of their in-district stuff here in California. Every Friday, they're in-district. So, our, you know, we really, really encourage people to get those relationships up. You know, it's interesting because we had we were talking, another group was talking about, well, we're going to go to the district offices and protest. And my answer was, no, you're not going to protest because we need them to vote with us. If they've got people outside their door on, you know, bullhorns and all the rest of it, that doesn't help us because we need their votes. And so we need people to be friendly to them. We need people to, you know, educate them, to to have them understand whatever the reason it is that they don't want this bill to go through. It doesn't need to be the same reason I have. You know, I come from mm-hmm. a scientific perspective. I come from, you know, but if it's education and and or single moms that you don't want them to be out of work fabulous. I'll go with that. I don't care what the reason is, as long as you're on our side and, and you're abstaining or voting no on Mm -hmm. these bills. Um, And I think the, and the other piece is, is to get people who are in organizations or leading organizations involved. Um, So one of the big things that a voice for choice advocacy did, for example, on the, on the employee bill was we reached out to all of the chambers of commerce that about 600 chambers of commerce, local chambers of commerce here in California. And a number of them wrote letters opposing the bill. And so things like that work out who the, who the organizations, especially in, in the, uh, in the, person who is supporting the bill, you know, or the the uh, party that is writing the bill. So in our case, all of them are Democrat legislatures. So we want people who support the Democrats opposing these bills, because that wakes them wakes the authors and the, the legislatures up a bit more um, mm-hmm. so to go to those and ask them to write write letters of um, of opposition. And then, you know, for example, our school age one, we've got people going to school boards and, and uh, board of supervisor meetings to get them to write letters and those types of things. So it's really, you know, that outreach. And I think that, that, you know, the legislature is slightly different in every state. And so I'm not saying that this is blanket overall, but Mm -hmm. I do think, you know, all of those can be applied to every state and it really makes a difference to be to be active out there. And, you know, the other thing I say to people, because some people are just like, I don't want to talk to government officials. I don't want to go give public comment. And then my comment is, well, then just go talk to the people that you see, you know, go to farmer's markets, go to sit in a coffee shop and just start talking to somebody about things and just drop little seeds that, you know, even if they are pro-vax right now, you know, that force booster shot to me is one, or the fact that people got Omicron, you know, sort of how does those vaccines work? You know, I'm really curious, you know, what you think of them and that type of thing. So I think there's a lot to be, I think a lot of people have woken up, but I think there's a lot more work to do on, on all fronts here in California and, and across the U.S., <laughs> Yes. Yeah, exactly. A lot of work to do, but we all have to do our part. 
Yes. You know, I, I hope people understand the gravity of where we are. I have a lot of hope. I believe we are in a very, on our side, peaceful yeah. revolution. There are a lot of changes coming. People are trying to set up new medical system, medical mm -hmm. care places outside of the system. We're finding new ways to get along, to be heard, all in a very peaceful way. Um, but it's, you know, we need to keep at it. More and more people are waking up. And I tell you, um, it's empowering. Javier, how do you feel? I mean, I was never active in politics. I thought it would be boring. But I tell you, it is, it's not, is it? Especially right now. Yeah. Um, oh, you're muted. We're not hearing you, Javier. When you have so many different constituencies to balance out, it really is about trying to coalesce. And like you said, I'll support anyone that's on, on our side to push certain uh, legislation through. Uh, I'm still I'm still surprised or impressed that uh, Senator Pan is still pushing forward with it when you know the support has been just going down through the floor, and uh, it, it's just egregious, uh, absolutely egregious what that what that one person that one legislator is doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Christina, one last time, where can information be found and where can you be found, uh, your organization? Yeah, so a voice for choice advocacy.org. Uh, we are in the midst of revamping our website. So it, by Monday, I think we'll have it, it will be revamped. So um, all of the bills and things will be up there. But then the other one, if, if you want to look at what other organizations are fighting in California uh, mm -hmm. for this or against these bills, it's com uh, convention on health rights.org. Uh, Convention two. on healthrights.org. Well, Christina Hildebrand, thank you so much for joining us here today. And yeah. Javier, thank you as always. You've been listening to an informed life radio on 1150 AM, KKNW and CHD TV. You guys all have a great weekend. We'll be back next week. Take care. I know. Bye. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. 
high above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.